Yeah, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think the argument now is, do we say not guilty because we personally like the film and everyone else does and it'd be a shame for it to be locked away and be found guilty? Or do we say not guilty because somebody's argued their case really, really well and you kind of understand where they're coming from? So I think this is a really, really, really tough one. What do Dan, you think, the la- in the last argument, you literally said, I argued well, but overall... <laughs> You can't then, for your co-host, be like, well, he's maybe smart. we should consider the argument. He's smart. Maybe. He's smart. He's smart, this man. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a hell. Are you not entertained? I am your Hello and welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast that gives you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching. We are continuing to entertain you during lockdown and I'm your host David Oscar and as always I'm joined by my co-host, he is the judge, jury and executioner, Craig McDonald. Hello Craig. Slice. <laughs> so last time it was just shut up, this time it, it's... Even more, even more grim. Well, you literally introduced me as an executioner, so I thought I'd just <laughs> warn you. Yeah, it fits with the narrative. Craig has had to watch a lot of bad movies lately for this podcast, so he's just getting getting more and more angry. I was thinking either judge, jury, and executioner, or just a ritual master of, of sacrificing bad movies. <laughs> If there is one thing you do not want to tempt me with, and that is lighting a massive fire and chucking people into it. (laughs) Today, uh, if you have not already checked out part one, me and Craig recently were guests on the Dan and Joe film show. It is a show that we are very affiliated with, good friends with Daniel Cullinane and Joe Richards. So we did a part one to this two-parter in which we talked about films that we loved that everyone else hated. So it sort of stemmed from the idea of where we talked about films we had never seen before. So we want something along that similar vein. So to parallel that today, we thought we would talk about movies we hate that everyone else loves. Because of course, after talking about horrible Adam Sandler films, we just had to carry on talking about films we hate and a, a struggle to get through. But joining us for that is, like I said, our two friends. They've been on the show uh, recently, uh, since we started lockdown, and and they were on Film Talk all all that uh, time ago, and now it feels like the circle of life. You know, we had Dan, we had Joe, and now we've finally been able to bring them both both back on together. Uh, social distancing is is not changing that thanks to to Zoom. Uh, hello, Dan and Joe. Hello. Thank you for having us back on, and it's nice to be back on as uh, as a pair again. You know, I felt like last time there was half of my soul missing so it's nice to be kind of reunited as one again Definitely. yeah it is it, 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 if we were all in the human centipede it'd be like we all went centipede you know like it's good to be back and um but why want to know guys let's get to the juicy stuff so you've had me well, on you just talked about the human centipede is <laughs> <laughs> we'll always start off you know with a fam- family in mind no uh, i i, I <laughs> I've been on as, as, a, as a co-host. Joe has been on as a co-host. We've been on separately. Who was the better co-host? Okay, oh. come on, guys. I want, I want the juicy gossip right now. Well, uh, from what I understand, you guys were comparing that on the basis of how you did in your respective endgames. So you tell me who the better ho- <laughs> the better guess was. Uh, Joe, Joe beats me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. 
It's all going to change. Well, like, don't worry. What I liked about Dan's Endgame was the fact that when I listened to his show, how annoyed he was getting <laughs> that he didn't know the answers. Whereas with me, and I was like, oh, that's quite frustrating. Dan was like, I honestly thought he was going to like, you know, kick off and like throw his toys out the. Pram. I did. So I did. Insane. I mean, I got. I think I burst a blood vessel. <laughs> it's just the pressure of being against me. But no worries today, guys. It's it's going to be less pressure. You're just against each other. That's that's no big rivalry at all. It'll uh, be good to finally <laughs> spark that rivalry again, especially considering the first and only other time you guys have taken each other on. Joe was the victor in that situation. Yeah, and you know what? For. You know what, Joe? You can't hide behind the Muppet questions anymore. He's going to be big. <laughs> Yeah, we like to think that the game we have for you later is definitely uh, a level playing field. This is the first time in the past few weeks that we've had guests who are fellow film podcasters. So how have you found it, you know, specifically because, you know, you started around, was it like January? You know, getting used to recording content and then having to completely change the way you do it within, you know, just a few weeks and, and you know, keeping it fresh and keeping it updated, etc. It's been frustrating. It's been really hard, I think, in a way, because obviously, like you said, we started back in January. So literally, I think we recorded maybe three or four episodes before all this kind of happened. Maybe five, I can't remember. So it was really frustrating to kind of, start something new and kind of be in the swing and really excited about this new project that, that we were working on and especially after kind of everything which was going on around that time as well like a lot of frustrations and a lot of drama with certain other shows and things like that it was very frustrating to be psyched and ready to like have everything in place for this new new project and then this kind of throw a massive banner in the works I think it's been fine in terms of me and Dan, you know, we're good friends outside of the show, so we'll regularly kind of catch up. I think it's very few days where we don't talk. I'm sure you and Craig are the same, where we don't talk or kind of, you know, mention something about the podcast. Um, so we, we've kind of had a good plan in place, and I think we've done okay in getting enough content. But I am at that point now where I miss being in the same room as, you know, Dan and the guests. And I don't know, I think it, it's fine over Zoom, but I think, there's, I think there's a different kind of rapport with people when, when you're with them in person. So that's been a real struggle as well. I'm not sure if Dan agrees or not. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's been pros and cons. I, you know, I think you know, the con is that you know, we love being in the studio together. And, um, I, you know, in terms of content, obviously cinemas have been closed for a while now. But yeah, Joe's right. I think um, for me, I really, really miss being in the same room as Joe and like, um, you know, just getting back to the routine, having, having our glamorous studio. I'm sure you two can agree as well. I think, um, you know, we, we, we took it for granted, but, you know, for like the first five episodes, that's kind of what we had and it, everything was going great. And then all of a sudden we had to just kind of go on, you know, live, you know, go our separate ways and do it on um, Skype. and. Yeah, like Joe says, you have a rapport in the studio and, you, and you, you're, not, you're not cutting each other off and it's not Wi-Fi issues. But yeah, you know, we've, we've, I think we've mastered it. You know, we've, um, we've made it the best out of the situation. But I feel like everyone's at that point now where it's like, okay, we, we've done it now for like three months. Let's just go back to kind of the way it was. But um, you know what? It's, we're, we're, you know, we're lucky, aren't we? I think all of us are lucky to have a podcast and to have it continue, even though uh, with everything going on, we're quite lucky that we have the technology where we can record podcasts and we can have guests on from around the world. 
so yeah, I think, you know, every cloud has a silver lining, as they say, but um, I'm definitely with Joe. I think um, I, I definitely want to go back to that studio. It's funny how different creatives are, are getting around how they film certain things, and we'll see more of that in the coming months, I'm sure. But talking about trying to entertain a lot of people, today we're going to be trying to make our case for some movies that we hate that everyone else loves. So when we were on the Dan and Joe film show, we were talking about films that we love that everyone else hates. So that was quite a big barrier to sort of cross in that you had to sort of defend this film because so many people had negative thoughts towards it. Well, today it might be even more of an uphill battle because it's a film that everyone loves, so they're immediately going to be on you if you hate it. So we're going to carry on with the same theme, which we were going about it in a sort of courtroom style, so in defense of, uh, we'll use the guilty or not guilty uh, verdicts. So that means at the end of each person's defense statement and why they hate that movie, uh, the other three will judge whether they deem it guilty or not guilty of being uh, a film that should be out, out within the public. So each one of us has chosen a film that we hate that everyone else loves, and we're going to go backwards to the way that we did it on the Dan and Joe film show. So we're going to start off for once with the hate from Craig <laughs> rather than leaving it till the end. All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is okay. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Stop it. So for me, a large conversation I have to have is with a lot of people who think the films that are basically trying for the, the Oscar season and the general award season, they basically say that these films are incredibly pretentious and they're about really, really trivial niche subjects that nobody should really care about. And that they're basically just loads and loads of sophisticated people who are unrelated to society and that basically they just go for like, ridiculous twists that no people would follow and they're just incredibly unrelatable and for the vast majority of cases i've defended oscar films so hard because i think that there's a great degree that they can often show us about areas of society this film however i feel represents everything that those people keep saying and it's the first time i basically had to come around and agree with those people and to the point that i genuinely hated this film the film that i'm going to be talking about today is the film phantom fred <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> now i can't remember it dan did, did you love this dan did you see it pretty much yeah yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> pretty sure it's but five you know star feel, with a love heart. I feel so, Craig, I, this is meant to be. I feel so less pressured now with my choice. I did give this five stars. <laughs> um, but in all fairness, I've not seen it for many years. So, okay. um, you know, you may convince me. Okay. So one of the big things that Phantom Fred definitely has against its name is the fact that it's a two and a half hour. No, sorry. It's a two hour and 10 minute film. And before the story gets anywhere significant it's it's about the hour and a, hour and a half way i think a lot of what this film is trying to do is build up this this atmosphere of the grandiose lifestyle within london the sophistication of uh, of how uh, reynolds woodcock uh, played by daniel day lewis basically wants to live his life as a as a professional dressmaker and the sorts of routines that he goes for um this is sort of the the sheldon cooper effect some people find it uh find it interesting the types of routines that he has and the way that he reacts when people disrupt those routines uh some people 
well a, a lot of people basically get put off by that thing and uh by that type of reaction i think the way he reacts in a lot of situations i think is a bit over over the top for me and i think in terms of whether or not i find the character engaging note i think a lot of people's defense of this film is basically saying that oh it's it's meant to be the point that these characters are are unlikable i think that's true but the problem is for me as well is that they're unengaging because of it so i don't i just don't care about reynolds i don't because I don't like him. I don't find any of the actions that he does compelling. And I think there are great examples of films which depict like bad people doing bad things, but I find them compelling for a number of reasons. If you look at someone like, say, Scarface, uh, credibly ca- uh, compelling character. If you look at like the characters in Whiplash, incredibly compelling characters, even though they are basically douches. Wolf of Wall, Wall Street basically covers a load of people who are doing incredibly immoral things but yet they're so charming and likable. I don't find the characters in this film, especially Reynolds Woodcock, engaging. And this is also a problem because one of the, the storyline they try and build up is this idea that he basically has, uh, has a character, uh, Alma, played by uh, Vicky Kripes, basically fall in love with him and then she moves to London with him. But then because she doesn't really fit into his world, there's a bit of conflict there. And the way they get around this just isn't realistic because I'm going to insert small spoilers here. It's a very small spoiler. I won't spoil the biggest thing, but basically she hears rumblings that like she's, they're, they're going to break, they're potentially going to break up and she's going to have to leave this world. And she starts to poison him to the point that he basically starts developing this idea of dependence and then they do get married and then the relationship breaks down all over again. What? Why? No! If you have a problem with your relationship, talk about it. Don't chuck out the rat poison and cyanide and just go, have on this, marry me. Have on this, marry me. And her character just out of nowhere becomes so sinister in the way that she then operates because she intentionally goes out of her way to try and disrupt these routines that has just been built up. And you don't see it as fighting back in a healthy way, but it's, it's actually something quite, something just quite toxic about the relationship. But there's nothing, at least for me, bringing it back in terms of why I should necessarily support this relationship or like either of these characters to the point that because I don't think that relationship should carry on in any way, I, I don't care about any of the, the trappings of them trying to bring it together. And then I think the other thing then past that is that it definitely feels like a film which is a lot of uh, a lot of style uh basically masking the substance like i'm not going to deny uh, deny this film is beautiful i think that the i think the shots i think that the like the scenery and the settings they are incredibly gorgeous as you would expect from a dressmaking film but then there are other technical elements such as the music i think is incredibly heavy-handed at times it definitely felt especially early on in the film that when they wanted to make an emotional point, they would just like play really loud, booming piano music in order to make their point, as opposed to having something a bit more refined and subtle. And I, I just found that distracting. Granted, when I saw this in the cinema, what didn't help was the fact that there was, uh, when David and I went to see this in the cinema, there was one person in the cinema with us. He was sat on the opposite side of the cinema to us, like one row forward. But he was just sat there cross-legged. And every now and then he would just be, he would just be like, ha, ha, ha. Who actually laughs like that? And for me, that was just it. It just felt like that guy with that kind of weird, sophisticated, pompous laugh was just the target audience of this film. So, and then when it gets to the end twist, I, like I said, I won't reveal what it is, 
but when they but when it's revealed what it is and then Reynolds' character, uh, so uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, says one line. I was just horrified because I was just like, if that's genuinely the message of this film, Jesus Christ, you- you're going to do more damage to social relationships than Harley Quinn and Joker. Like, what the hell? And it just left a massive sour taste in my mouth. I've had so many arguments with people about this film, and I'm interested to see whether or not we're going to have another one today. This is the moment you find out that Dan and Joe were those people like, ha ha, ha ha ha. Pa- pass me my herbal greed, greed tea, please. Ha, ha, ha. I've got to be honest with you. I think when you said Phantom Thread, I was like, oh boy. But I think you've argued yourself very, very uh, justifiably, to be honest with you. I, I watched it in the cinema amid all the us Oscar buzz. And it's one of those films, it, is, it looks like a very pretentious film. Um, it looks like the type of audience, like you said, coming in with their scarves and their green teas and they're thinking, oh, goodness me, Daniel Day-Lewis, he's extraordinary. Um, and so I went in thinking, oh, gosh, and here I was, like my trainers and ripped jeans and all that, all the youth. Um, and I was the youngest person in that cinema. I remember going to watch it. I think for me, I think it's subjective, isn't it? I think if you, if you didn't like the relationships portrayed in the movie, if you didn't like kind of the message it gave, which I understand, then obviously, you know, you're not going to take to it. And I think, fair play, I think this is the one film that year which I'm going to give you a pass on because when you think of other films like Room, films like Steve Jobs, films like Whiplash, there is no denying, like, those are excellent films. And if if anybody dare, like, you know, especially Room, because Room is something that I really love a lot, if anybody was to be like, oh, yeah, it's horrible, I would literally defend it tooth tooth and nail. Um, but with Phantom Fred, I totally get you. I haven't seen it. I've only seen it once. I've not seen it since. And I don't feel like it's dated very well. Um, however, mm. for me, the reason I love it so much is because of Daniel Day Lewis. I think he is absolutely incredible. Um, I remember when Joe came out last year, a lot of people said, oh, Joaquin Phoenix, he's the actor of this generation. I disagree. I think Daniel Day Lewis is up there. I think he's, I still think he's very underrated as an actor. Um, and also the costume design, I know it won an Oscar for that. That is beautiful, like you said. Um, but funnily enough, I think when it comes to my film, my big positive will be, it's beautiful, it's stunning. So I completely agree with you. Um, I don't know whether I can give it a not guilty. I don't know, I have to think about it. But I think out of all the films that year, I'm kind of glad you chose this one because there are the, that minority of people who it just didn't take to it. I think that's good. Yeah, I think for me, so with the Daniel Day-Lewis argument, I think you're definitely right. He gave a really, uh, he gave a really good performance. But... For me, when I compare that comp- performance against his other com- performances that I've seen, especially, uh, especially against something like, say, Lincoln, I feel that while it was a good performance, I don't think it was a groundbreaking, exceptional performance. I think that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't give that enough of a, you know, a boost to its ranking of the film for me. Because for me, it would need to be a, okay, I'm hating everything. It's now got to be absolutely pure exceptional and it was a great performance but i don't think it was enough of a a game changer for me to give it that additional credit something that justifies the whole point craig's making with the daniel day lewis argument is that this was is meant to be his last ever film performance it's like you can't go out on this daniel you know you need to sit down with daniel like daniel you can't end it like this man you can't you can't do it because for a man who's played you know people who, uh, you know, were losing weight and, you know, historical figures. For him to play just such a stale and annoying character, you know, I get that that's the idea of the film, but, you know, don't go out on that. And 
I think my major problem was just the, you know, the script. It was just, it just meandered and just dragged its feet so much. And I was like, can we just get to the point? You know, I understand when films are trying to do these daring things or uh, they have unlikable characters. But like Craig said, there's plenty other examples of, of that being done well. And I think it was just a case of aesthetically, it just wasn't my type of film. You know, often period pieces can be quite a hit and miss for me anyway. But it's just that this fact, this film was just pushing it in my face. I remember the only thing that got me through this was seeing it with Craig because we, you know, I literally made the joke at one point when the, the music got way too much for me that I just started doing a hacking movement with my arms because I just wanted to kill the person who was on that piano because I couldn't stand anymore like it just aggravated me and yeah I just didn't come out of that film happy at all so you know I've got to agree with Craig on this one I think it is guilty of being terrible I didn't like it either. It was one of my the worst films I saw of that year. I think it's pretentious. I think it's ridiculous. It's slow. And yeah, just style of a substance. Well, I'm very disappointed because <laughs> um, a, couple, a couple of nights ago, uh, me and my better half were looking for something to watch. And she said she wanted to watch something, a film which just looked beautiful. And I was scrolling around on Netflix, because it's worth mentioning, Phantom Thread is on Netflix at the moment, I think. I think I saw it on there. It's on one of the streaming platforms. It definitely is Netflix. Yeah. So I was going to suggest to her at the time watching it, because I haven't watched it uh, again like Dan since since I saw it in the cinema. So I wish now I I revisited it then. I think we chose something else in the end. Um, only because so Fantasia kind of or something refresh. genuinely <laughs> <laughs> yeah just to kind of refresh my memory and my thoughts uh, on the film so I'm going by what I can kind of remember of it and I remember actually really really liking it and I think I, I liked it a lot um, because I think I'd seen no trailers for it nothing like that I'd just seen the poster and I did walk in with that attitude of it's going to be a hoity-toity oh hello there top of the hat and tip of the hat and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, uh, you know, this is going to be a drag. This is going to be really like a slog of a movie to get through, looking at its running time and everything like that. Um, but I was remember being surprised at how many times I actually ended up laughing. And I'm not sure if that's got something to say about me and my own kind of personal experiences, maybe. Um, but I just found that the film... <laughs> But like had really kind of dark humor in places. And I, and I totally get where you're coming from. The relationship, which is central to the movie, is very toxic. It is a very toxic relationship. But I also think it is a very kind of authentic relationship. Not in the sense of like the extent that they go to, like, like you said, like poisoning each other. But like, I don't know, I just think I love the juxtaposition, I guess, of that kind of period setting of a film being so beautiful, but the characters being so ugly, and that kind of juxtaposition between like the visuals and the characters and the stuff which was going on in it. Because usually when you see a period film of that kind, it's something, you know, like, uh, like Sense and Sensibility, I don't know, like films like that, you know? And I just think, you know, really kind of nice characters, you know kind of what's gonna happen. And I think I was just relieved to kind of walk in and not find a slog kind of dull movie, but something which kind of kept me engaged. I didn't know where it was going at all. And I think I really appreciated that of it. I think there was a lot 
I loved about it than kind of hate more than I loved than I hated. So I don't know if I can, like Dan, I don't know if I can kind of give it a, a guilty verdict. I think I'm going to have to go not guilty on this one. So, um, so as far as I gather, David, you're on the guilty. Joe, you're on the not guilty. So I'm the deciding vote. <laughs> yeah. um, I think Craig has argued himself brilliantly. However, I think... <laughs> Uh, I shouldn't be doing that. I should just side with him because I think all of you are going to go after me at the end. But there we are. I've got to go with my heart on this. I think the point you raised with toxic relationships, I think if films can pull it off well, and I think like Joe said, if you can create characters that are really engaging, which I remember Daniel Duncan has been incredibly engaging and in her co-star, his co-star as well. For me, like not only is the film beautiful and stunning and stylish, and I thought going in it was going to be style of a substance. For me, like you said, the central performances, they're incredibly compelling. I, I'm still fond of it. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to give it not guilty. Phantom Thread there is deemed not guilty. It is still out there for the masses to uh, divide themselves over. Now go on to our next film, which comes from Joe. I don't know how I feel now after kind of defending <laughs> against Craig having to go next. So the film that I've gone for was directed by Stanley Kubrick, and it is the Stephen King adaptation of The Shining. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. A lot of people that I know of kind of consider it to be, you know, one of the kind of best thrillers, kind of horror movies of its day uh, and everything like that. But I have to disagree. It's one of those films which I think for years had kind of been bigged up, like films like The Godfather, you know, as like a classic movie. And I remember watching it for the first time on a New Year's Eve. I had nothing better to do. So I sat in my house New Year's Eve, Eve first time I was going to watch it. I remember at the time being a little bit underwhelmed with it. I'm not going to lie. I was like, mm, this, from what everybody has said, I was expecting far more from it. This wasn't helped by the fact that a couple of years later, I went and read the book uh, by Stephen King and subsequently rewatched the movie. And it's no surprise to me that I did the research not long after and found out that Stephen King hated this adaptation of his source novel. And I think it's clear to see why. There's a great quote uh, that Stephen King has, which is one of my favorite quotes, because I, I like supernatural stuff. I love ghost stories in general. Um, and this is one of the like, kind of great quotes of his, I think, which are, monsters are real and ghosts are too. They live inside of us and sometimes they win. And I love that idea of ghosts somehow being tied to our own kind of trauma and our own kind of emotions and, and, and everything like that. And this book is all about that. The book itself, Stephen King's book, delves into what is essentially a man who has got severe traumas from his childhood. He was beaten by his alcoholic father and now this man has basically got drinking problems himself. And in the book, it's mentioned, and I don't think it's, I think it maybe is hinted at in the film, but in the book, it's mentioned a lot 
that Jack has um, has kind of, is sort of turning into his father. He's hurt his own son, and you know he hopes that going to the Overlook Hotel will somehow kind of fix him. Um, but also there's that very real kind of concern that his drink problem will kind of increase, and his wife is living in fear that he might end up one day hurting his son to the point of killing him. And that is the kind of central relationship at, at the core of this of, of the book of this father doing everything in his power to kind of fight these demons, not become his father, and protect his son. And that kind of all builds up to this really great finale where the overlook, it's a different finale to the film, and I won't spoil it, but in, in the book, the Overlook Hotel is set on fire and it's got more of that, it kind of goes more into the inner turmoil of this father kind of fighting his inner demons and real demons, these ghosts. And there's like a moment where he kind of tells his son to run because he's scared of what he's going to do to him. And that's really powerful stuff. So for the film to kind of shift the focus away from that core relationship and kind of make it more about, you know, Jack's descent into insanity, but an unambiguous descent into insanity, I think is a real failure on Kubrick's part. King himself has said one of his biggest problems for the film is that the first shot, the first moment you see Jack Nicholson in that movie, you can tell he's not right. You can tell he is like got something wrong and you can tell he's like he's got those that insane look in his eyes already and the book itself kind of develops that in a really kind of nuanced and subtle way so that when it gets to the end and that climax that you know it's it's deserved it's well in i don't think jack nicholson's kind of crazy end performance with the act and here's johnny as great as his performance is, and I will say the one thing the film does have for it, other than really great cinematography and a good soundtrack as well, Jack Nicholson's performance is fantastic. But I think you can have the aesthetics, you can have that carpet, you can have that don 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 that music, but if you don't kind of have the heart of the book, if you can't develop the kind of the, the relationships and the actual kind of conflict of the characters in the book, then for me, it's not a successful adaptation, first and foremost. And the film itself, I just don't think it wins. I don't find it scary. I mean, it's tense. It's got, as I said, it's aesthetically pleasing. But, you know, it's just Jack Nicholson going nuts. And for me, that's not scary enough to, to kind of do justice to the book. There is a mini series currently on Amazon Prime as well, which King prefers. It's like four hours, five hours long. And I've got to say that does a far better job of it. And it was great to see Dr. Sleep come out last year. Uh, Mick Flanagan, he's a great director of horror. He did uh, The House of Haunted Hill on Netflix. And it was interesting to see especially that he tried to fix some of the problems that King had with The Shining. So the kind of change is the ending of Dr. Sleep but does it to kind of redeem the ending of The Shining. So the ending of The Shining is actually now the ending to Doctor Sleep. And it does work. It works really well. 
So for me, it's a film which I'm fascinated by just because I love the book. And it's just a film I can sit down and kind of look at analytically and look at the cinematography and stuff and kind of think what was going on in Kubrick's mind. Why did he make those creative decisions? But it is a film which I don't understand people's love of. I saw it, I went to the cinema to watch it on the big screen because they said there was going to be 20 minutes of Doctor Sleep attached to it. And it was packed out and people were loving it and engaged. And I just sat there and I was thinking, as great as it is to look at, it's just boring. And like the book is so much better. Uh, so yeah, it's a film which, for me, I've just never got the love that, that kind of surrounds it. And um, and yeah, I suggest people go read the book um, instead of watching the film. I just got this image of Joe now in the cinema, like boo, <laughs> boo, and all these people turning around angry. So basically, The Simpsons actually does a better job of showing Homer going into descending madness as he turns out quite normal at the beginning than uh, Jack Nicholson does in the film. <laughs> Pretty much, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it does a better job than, and Sammy Kubrick's an amazing filmmaker, but for me it's just a complete misfire in terms of an adaptation. I mean, I'm surprised I didn't pick this up from Joe because it is a film he references a lot. Um, and it is something that I think, you know, I can relate to the film I'm going to choose. Not in the sense that it's a terrible film, um, but real shock and despair that it has such a cult following that so many people love it. And The Shining for me, like, I don't really have any strong feelings because I don't feel like it impacted my life and my era in the same way that maybe Joe's has. But, like, it's always on TV. Um, I remember when I was quite young watching it, and I was terrified by it, but mainly because I was quite young. I remember it being really creepy imagery is one of the things I remember. And I really only remember the second half of the film. I don't really remember the first half. Um, and so I think it is worth me going back and re-watching the whole thing because like Joseph, it's a long, long movie. Um, and yeah, for me, like, I remember watching it like years ago and just feeling this sense of dread and tension. Like, I do think it's a really terrifying film, um, you know, with the woman in the bath and the act scene and, you know, here's Johnny. Um, but Joe's right, like there are moments in it which is kind of comedic. And I'm like, is this supposed to be this way? There's an end scene where obviously Jack Nicholson chases um, in like the, in the maze in the snow and then he freezes over like this. And I'm like, was that supposed to be funny? I'm, just, I'm so confused by it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I totally get what Joe's saying about it. It's, it's you know, he, he respects the fact that, you know, it, 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 you know, it is, it, it, you know, it's an ambitious piece of filmmaking, no doubt. Um, but obviously, Joe, you know a lot more about Stephen King, the novel, um, what it was based on than I do. So I'm going to have to think about it a little bit and uh, I'll get back to you. I'm quite similar in that I, I haven't seen it since I was like, a teenager. And I remember watching it thinking, oh, this is the big film. This is the big horror film. And I think I felt more scared and on edge because I was just waiting to see what was so scary. And, and yeah, the, the woman in the bath and elements of the, the finale you know, do stick with you. You know, they definitely imprinted in my mind, especially the lady in the bath. But apart from that, like I said, I didn't feel that impacted by it. And I think visually, yes. And that's why I saw a laugh when Joe said about it, it doesn't matter about the carpet. <laughs> you know, I just love it if every film had, had this uh, recognizable carpet in it, which would uh, <laughs> judge how successful the film is or not. But um, I do feel that, you know, there is these big arguments for adaptations and it, it certainly makes me feel about my decision yesterday and the one I'll be talking about today because it does hinder a lot 
for people when they're watching something is the the lenses that they're, they're viewing it through. And I think when you're talking about a film that you hate, it's not because it's bad. Usually you sort of pity that film a bit more. You sort of hate it because it personally attacks you. And that's why I felt with my film. So I can completely sympathize with Joe in, in that sense. And if it is completely losing the mark of the book, then yeah, I, I completely understand that. And from what I remember, I remember thinking, well, you know, why does he go mad? And is it just, he goes mad and, and that's it. And and like I said, I joked about the Simpsons, but in that it is the element of he hasn't got beer and TV and it makes him go crazy. Whereas in the film, I just felt that it was just the influence of the house. And I never bought the relationship with Shelley Duvall, I, you know, and I think the, the whole story about having a breakdown basically from the bat scene just kind of doesn't put it in a good light either. And I never bought them as a couple. And when I was watching, I just remember thinking they don't seem like they're married at all. And I don't understand this relationship. She seems really weird. And she seems like the person who would be going crazy, not him. So yeah, and I didn't believe that the child would be hers either. So yeah, I, I, I could be convinced by Joe, but I'm interested in what Craig thinks. Yeah, for me, I'm not going to base any of my argument about how good of an adaptation it is because for me, that's not something that should necessarily come into play unless unless the film itself basically draws that parallel. I'm basically saying that so nobody calls me a hypocrite for my views on The Lion King. Um, yeah, so for, so for me, I mean, I haven't read the book. So I, un- I understand what the book is going for. I understand what the miniseries is going for. So I can definitely... I can definitely agree that in terms of the actual Stephen King story, the film is not a good representation of that. That said, in terms of the elements of atmosphere that has generally been built up throughout the film, at, the, at least to me in terms of its own right, I did, get, I, I did get a lot from it. Granted, I think that mine and David's reenactment of the bat scene is better than in, in the original, but Again, I think it was a really entertaining scene. Stay, stay away. Give me the bat. Stay away from me. Give me the bat. Great, stay away from me. Give me, stop swinging the bat. And just like, I did, I did genuinely like get absorbed into the series of Dread, right? I, I, I remember a lot of the, the opening quite vividly just because they have that ominous music. And it's probably one of the few horror-esque films that I probably respect. So I don't know. I think, for me, I needed more of an argument necessarily about why the film itself doesn't necessarily deserve the hype in terms of it being a film rather than it in terms of it being an adaptation. So for me personally, I think on those grounds and little little pinch of pettiness, uh, no, I'm joking. I'm probably going to say that this film is not guilty because I think that there's still a lot to be gained from this film. And even if people only want to gain from it from like meme culture, uh, I think that's also I think that's also fine. But I, I genuinely was quite intimidated when I watched the film. Yeah, I, th- I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think the argument now is, do we say not guilty because we personally like the film and everyone else does and it'd be a shame for it to be locked away and be found guilty? Or do we say not guilty because somebody's argued their case really, really well and you kind of understand where they're coming from? So I think this is a really, really, really tough one. What Dan, you the la- in the last argument, you literally said, I argued well, but overall. <laughs> you can't then, for your co-host, be like, well, he's maybe smart. we should consider the argument. He's smart. Maybe. He's smart. He's smart, this man. You, you got a point, Craig. You got a point. Um, I, again, Joe, you've argued yourself very well. Um, and I know when it comes to my film, you all can I, I do the same. 
I guess, I guess if I've done that for Craig, I've got to follow through. So I'm going to have to find this, this film, not guilty. Sorry. <laughs> Should I just go guilty now? Just, for, just to help. That's it, man. That's it. Joe and I are done now. <laughs> In a way, I am thinking that Joe so shot himself in the foot because as much as I liked his joke about the carpet, I am like, well, that did make a massive impact in this cultural, import, culturally important film, which Ready Player One actually managed to step itself up by having that yeah. film so heavily in it. So, yeah, I'm going to have to say not guilty just because it is so visually and important to film. And, and like I said, it, it's a personal hate, which... All of these are going to be, so I think that, yeah, not guilty. All right, well, David, Craig, I totally respect your uh, decision today. Daniel, you better find a new co-host, mate. <laughs> I feel a bit somewhat better now that Joe has brought in this element of adaptations. And Craig also mentioned, you know, the idea with Lion King of not being a hypocrite. So I also want to make the same statement here. You know, in the Dan and Joe film show, I was talking about how people's nostalgia of an original film can cloud how they might like a readaptation of the same story. And we I'm talking about this film today, a lot of people could say, well, you're just basing that on the nostalgia of the one that you grew up with. But the difference I feel with this film is that it's using elements of that film to make itself somewhat work, but then using other new elements which then doesn't make it work. And that'll become a lot more clear when I talk about this franchise because they very much are three different things. So the film that I have chosen is The Amazing Spider-Man, the 2012 Andrew Garfield movie. The sequel to this is hated. And so the reason I'm talking about this is in a film that people love is because I feel a lot of people say, oh, well, the first one's good. No, I disagree completely. They are two terrible films and they're Disgusting. two equally bad films. And that is because I think that they do some things with the Spider-Man mythology and the lore, which are just downright offensive. And it just, I wanted to walk out of this movie. This was one of the first films I almost walked out of. Since watching it later, a lot of that was just, you know, bias because of my nostalgia and feelings for the original films. But... I'll talk a lot more about why I hate it. And like you guys, I, I don't think it's an awful movie in terms of, you know, the elements of it. But, you know, why I feel that I hate it, I think will become a lot more clear. So, like I said, this is the reboot uh, in 2012. They sort of did after the Sam Raimi trilogy. Uh, they wanted to bring in elements that they were going to do for Spider-Man 4. Uh, but they also wanted to change it up with a new actor, a new director, a new feel. Um, so they brought in uh, Mark Webb as the director. Uh, they had Andrew Garfield as the new Spider-Man. And then they wanted to go down the sort of Gwen Stacy route rather than Mary Jane Watson. So they had Emma Stone play Gwen Stacy. The film is kind of similar to the other Spider-Man films in that it's, you know, the villain... Uh, develops his powers kind of adjacent to when Spider-Man develops his. Uh, we get this whole uh, origin of Spider-Man, of how he becomes Spider-Man, how he de develops the powers, how he gets bitten by the spider. But they put in this weird subplot about his parents, which is a part of the reason that I dislike this film and, and the, the sequel. So for me, I think that the reason that I hate this so much is because... 
it is that meddling that that angers me is the the fact that they feel they need to tell the story of peter parker's parents and while a lot of people might say oh well that's in the comics there's a comic book story about that the difference between comic books is that there's like three comics made per month over 50 60 years so of course there's going to be little stories along the way when you only have about at this stage, four films of Spider-Man. That's not the time to be saying, oh, well, we've never had, you know, the story of Peter Parker's parents. Well, no, because we have still don't feel like the character is embedded into film because he's only really had three films. It's not like we're 20, 30 films in, like somebody like James Bond. So I feel that that completely distracts from the main story. It sets the film up in a completely weird way. And it's just a disservice to the character because... The idea of the character, even in the comics when they talk about his parents and in the animated series, is that Uncle Ben and Aunt May were his parents. And this film just completely trashes on them because any time that Uncle Ben is in the story, he's just talking about Peter's dad. And it just, you know, you know, Andrew Garfield's Peter says, oh, you know, you're a good dad. Well, that's only based on the fact that he just keeps using lessons from Peter's father. So he's just a makeshift dad. He's just an echo of of Peter's real dad. And the fact that Peter keeps looking for information about his parents is just an even more of a disservice to Uncle Ben because he's like, you know what? Even though I appreciated you, I'm still going to look into my real parents because why not? But the scene where Uncle Ben dies, so people you know, might say, oh, well, you're just comparing that to the original. Well, if you don't want me to compare it to the original, don't put it in the bloody movie. You know, That's why I think this franchise is quite interesting because you've got the Sam Raimi films, which are really traditional, and you've got the Tom Holland ones, which are quite a different sort of take on the character in some ways. But at least they've gone, we're not talking about Uncle Ben. We're going to give him like Aunt May, but she's completely different. We're going to give him a completely different best friend. We're going to give him a different father figure. So you don't make those comparisons. Whereas this film decides to go, well, we're going to do some things different, but we're going to do some things the same. So you can't help but compare them and just feel that the, the new stuff is just weirdly placed. So the fact that Uncle Ben dies because Peter buys a milkshake just really, really gets on my nerves. The first film, it's literally because Peter's selfishly getting money because he wants to buy a car to impress, you know, a girl. And he doesn't help the guy who underpays him because he wants his own back because he didn't uh, give him the money he deserved. And he thought, you know what, this guy deserves to get robbed because he's a crook. Well, in this film, they just put that into a guy who works at a shop and wouldn't give Peter his milkshake because he didn't have two cents. It just comes across as petty and just makes Andrew Garfield's character just a douche, in my, in my opinion. And that's why a lot of people will say that Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker is too cool, and I agree with that. A lot of people will say that Spider-Man, he's good as Spider-Man. I can agree to some extent, but I go to the scene in my head the most when he's first introduces Spider-Man and he's in the car and he says, oh no, you know, knives, my one weakness. And you thought I was a cop? To me, it's too snarky. It's, it's not that balanced that Spider-Man needs to be. To me, this was more like Deadpool because I feel that Spider-Man is all about having quips and being sarcastic, but to himself, he's not actually sort of, if he mocks his enemies, he does it in sort of like playful way or he'll quickly throw it at them. He won't do it in this sort of like, oh, no, you found my one weakness. I'm scared and nice. Oh, you really think that I'm a cop in this? He just becomes too banterous and I just don't like it. Uh, the other thing that makes it difficult for me to get on board with this film 
is the visuals. I think they looks great with the dark cityscape of New York, etc. But the costume is terrible. I I I look at it and I could get on board with the story and everything they do if Spider Man looked like Spider Man. But I don't like the gold tinted glasses. I don't know why anybody looked at that and said that's good. I would have gone on board with it if maybe that that was the first costume. Then it developed to another one. But the fact they struck the entire film, I don't like it. I don't think it looks like Spider Man. I know they were going with this DIY effect that it looked like he made it himself. But at the same time, we're looking at a film about a guy who webs himself from building to building and is dealing with a giant lizard. So do we really need to like believe that he could make this costume? I think that, again, the Tom Holland and the Tobey Maguire ones do perfectly good jobs of having his makeshift costume and then go into the sort of more theatrical costume, which you want to see. <clears throat> you know, if you're going to steal cars, don't dress like a car thief. You a cop? You seriously think I'm a cop in a skin-tie red and blue suit? Who are you? I know it's been rough for you, Peter. <laughs> And the two other things I'll say about it, which get on my nerves, is Reese Evans as the lizard. I think he started off really well. I think he did a good job in the role. He was quite good in his sort of scientific aspects. But I just don't understand why they then went down this weird Paul Peter Parker, you know, angle. Why is he saying that? Why did they think that was funny? A lot of people might come back and say, oh, well, you know, the uh, Sam Raimi films are really dumb and silly as well. They are, but this film is trying to be something more serious and more dark. So why have we then got what looks like a knockoff Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle running around saying, Paul Peter Parker? It it just makes me cringe every time I see it. I think it's dumb. Um, and the other part is the romance with Gwen Stacy. I think Emma Stone is really well cast as Gwen Stacy. I think she's great. I just don't like the dialogue in this film. The chemistry between Andrew Garfield and her are noticeable and works to an extent but to me it just comes off as cringeworthy because a lot of people say oh well they dated in real life so the true life romance is coming through whereas to me I feel that that does that distracts from the actual film because I just feel that I'm watching Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone flirting with each other I don't feel like I'm watching Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker flirt with each other I feel like I'm watching those actors flirt with each other and the part where he sort of like webs her and brings him over to her and, you know, she says things like, oh, I've been bit as well. You know, it's it's just too corny. And I just it's things that they then repeat in the second film, which then when people had an issue with, I was like, this was in the first one. Why didn't you see that? Lastly, the biggest like punch in the face they do to, to story is they set up uh, Gwen's uh, father as Captain Stacy. They tried to do him as an alternate to J. Joe Jameson. Again, if you can't do J. Joe Jameson, just don't do a parallel to him. He's the guy who's against Spider-Man, etc. And he says at the end of this movie, you know, promise me one thing. You know, he realizes that Peter is Spider-Man. He says, leave Gwen out of it. And he says, I promise. And then the film has the audacity at the end of it to just completely go back on that through this cocky line from Andrew Garfield when the teacher comes in and says, oh, many literature people say there's only 10 ma uh, main types of stories. Well, there's only one and it's about who you are. And, she's, and then they say, uh, you have to remember, don't make promises you can't keep. And then he whispers to Gwen Stacy, those are the best kind. And then she smiles 
That is just downright offensive to the promise you made to this dying father that you promised you would keep to his daughter and just angers me. If you want to get a good representation of it, watch how it should have ended. They do the perfect reaction to this in which Gwen Stacy literally turns red and rages at him for saying it. And yeah, the entire thing just, I think it's competently made. I think there's good elements of the strip. There's things I like, but it's just those key bits in there, which I think are bizarre and I don't know why they did it. Rant over. <laughs> I genuinely like this film. Uh, I will do my case for it. But before I do, uh, I just want to make uh, one comment about like uh, some of David's arguments. Uh, Dan and Joe, I sent you guys a message. Uh, would somebody like to read out what I said? No, we're not. We're not going to read out because it's not very nice, is it? Oh. <laughs> You've been a naughty boy. You've been a naughty boy. It's not nice. Joe, would you like to read out the message? Yeah, I'll read it. Uh, <laughs> David, I defended so, you. <laughs> there was well, me thinking actually, Joe I, is the nice, I think, nice, nicer of the two, and he wouldn't. I was like, damn, well, I think, I think I, David understands that what I say, I say out of love, and he can't I deny that some of the arguments come under this bracket. Can we just yeah, clarify? Just, David is just David just admitted that Joe is the nicer out of the two. So you know what? I might change to not. Be no, no, no. I, I, I meant it in the way that Joe would be like, no, I can't go down that road. Where's down? Like, I will spare you the torture. Of <laughs> it's okay. No, so, no. Um, bearing in mind, I did not write this. So as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> my, my, my hands are clean here, Dan. Okay, I've got no, no issue reading it out. Uh, so Craig wrote. I've never seen or heard David act like a 14-year-old boy before. And I knew him when he was 14. <laughs> wow, so funny. Basically, what I meant by that was that it was a very impassionate speech, but it was also the sort of impassioned speech that I would hear... I, I, I would hear from a kid, basically. Um, well, that, that, that's, think, that's not fair. That's no, not that, fair. No, to be fair... No, no one said I, that I, about your speech. No, to that's be not fair, fair, in my mind, I was like, if I'm going to sell this, I need to come across as passionate. And, it, you know, it's the 14-year-old me in me that watched the Tobey Maguire film. So I'm willing to take that. That's how I'm going to exactly. make my Exactly. Well argument. done, David. That, well done. That's, Good that's how you win there, this debate. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, basically, David's coming from a very nostalgia-filled uh, position with Spider-Man which is something that I'm not and generally wasn't, uh, generally wasn't at the time anyway. So, I mean, okay, so I'm going to go for a couple of things. One, with this idea of Andrew Garfield not being an appropriate Spider-Man. I, I will accept that he is probably not an acceptable Peter Parker for a certain extent. But to say he's not an acceptable Spider-Man with the quips, I don't think is, I don't think is fair. I think that I think that especially when you compare like some of the scenes with like Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, I thought that dialogue was incredibly corny. And there are even times where literally, if you listen to like the actors' commentary of those scenes, they're making fun about how weird and nonsensical some of the some of the lines actually are. So even if it's not necessarily like what Spider-Man should be, I think it is more in the right direction than say Tobey Maguire's is. Granted, like some of the Peter Parker scenes, it does come off a bit high schooly, but even then, I'm still willing to accept that sort of I, that sort of drama up until extent the idea of the romance i personally thought the ro romance was really engaging i thought that they came off quite sweet and uh endearing and i don't have the same issues that david has with regards to the uh with regards to the dialogue i i i thought that like it was definitely it was definitely subtler sort form of like 
child like cringe and like the second one is because i admit the second one is cancer but again i'm not gonna i'm not willing to use the defense of you know the second one being really really bad to basically you know knock on the first granted david didn't do that but i think that some people who do want to knock the first will try and use that argument visually i thought the suit was i felt the suit was fine i i don't know i don't know exactly what i would expect from the suit i don't there aren't that many costume changes unless you're something like say Green Lantern's completely CGI'd uh, effect that bothered me in that regard. So I thought, I thought the suit was that uh, was fine. Yes, the villain was a was a bit weird and a bit quickly done in terms of uh, in terms of that characterization. But then I think there's also a degree to which saying, like, given the fact that a lot of the Spider-Man villains play around this idea of like you know uh, unstable mental like mental beings anyway i think they can get away with that a little bit more in terms of that speed especially considering that it is a scientist who's under a lot of psychological pressure basically doing things to his genetics he shouldn't be i can accept to a degree that his psyche is going to be messed up quite a bit so that's something that i was that just got a very easy pass with me um and then the last thing i'll defend is the ending i think that Yes, some people could see that as incredibly disrespectful, but it's not like he instantly promises the father and then instantly just goes back on his word. There is a time in which he doesn't spend any time with Gwen Stacy. He is agonizing over that choice, and then he comes to that. Deci- uh, he then comes to that decision that making sure that she's okay um, is the more important thing in that situation. So I think that it's fine there, and it and it does lead up to some drama in the second one. So it's not like it's just a complete insult. There is a storyline building up with that. So, yeah. Um, a little bit of context. David and I didn't see this film together. In fact, David was a completely different continent uh, at the time in which he saw, this, uh, he saw this film. I like to think that had David had a bit of a calming presence with him at the, at the time, uh, he wouldn't have like I think he might have been talked down from some of the extreme parts. I think some of his critiques, based on like you know how he sees the Spider-Man mythology, I think is I think is perfectly fair, and I'd never be able to convince him of that. But just I don't think it would bother him to the point of like vitriolic hatred. Um, had he just had somebody to properly talk it over with at the time, because I think it was like what about another two months until we actually talked about that film. And then we also had to talk about The Dark Knight Rises, which you loved and I didn't. So that didn't really help things either. So yeah, for me, I think that while it's not a perfect Spider-Man film, um, I don't think it is flawed significantly enough to the point that David has said it is. So for me, it's not guilty. Yeah, I've not seen it. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, ne- never, never compelled to watch it ever. Um, I hear number two is really bad. Um, so it's quite refreshing that you chose this one. Um, I'm a massive fan of the Sam Raimi series. Everyone says, oh, number three, number three is the worst film ever. I really like Spider-Man 3. I think they uh, have far more originality. I thought Tobey Maguire was a great Spider-Man. But those movies, so I think that plays a part in it. I think when this came out, I was kind of just in that teenage category. I just wasn't interested in Spider-Man anymore. And um, they've done so many of them now. Um, and I'm actually more interested to see the second one because apparently the second one is garbage. Um, so uh, Netflix, tick which this on that. Um, so I, but I honestly think, I think you've genuinely argued yourself really, really well. You've been very specific with the points that you've made. Uh, you know, you've, you've obviously seen the film enough times to know a lot about it. Um, so for me, I'm just going to say, um, I'm with you. I'm going to say guilty. Well, now Craig has said that he hates The Dark Knight Rises. Um, <laughs> kind of, I didn't kind say of I hated the... <laughs> 
I said I didn't like it. Okay, well, it kind of changes things. Now, I think it's certainly a film which I've not been tempted to revisit. I have revisited the other Spider-Man films um, often, and I really love Sam Raimi's uh, Spider-Man 2, and I really like Tom Holland and what he's doing at the moment with Spider-Man. And I sort of forgotten about Andrew Garfield, and I sort of forgotten about those films. And when I had seen scenes on the TV, I've kind of become bored of them very quickly. So on that basis alone, I've got no choice really to put it as a guilty verdict. Yes, <laughs> that's that's what I said. You go one end, the other, just take it out. <laughs> Just lift it out. <laughs> lift it out. Of I just say, David, that you did win one of those points from someone who had never seen the film. So you had, to, <laughs> yeah. you had no justifiable basis to go, actually, it's not guilty. It's that bad. He didn't even want to watch it. He didn't have time yeah. for it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so that is our first guilty of the episode. Will that continue for yourself, Dan? We shall see. What is your film that you've chosen that you hate that everyone else loves? All right, strap on in, kids. It's going to be a bumpy (laughs) ride. Uh, Here we go. So this is a film I've been sweating over profusely for the last couple of days. Um, And it's a film that I know for a fact David and Craig not just love. I think they probably hail as some kind of masterpiece, which is, you know, says it all, really. So this uh, is a film I've chosen. I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. <laughs> this is going to get a guilty, I know, but I, I just wanted you to hear me out for this. It's not a film I hate. Uh, it's not even, I watched it yesterday, recently, and it's a film that I can admire on some level, so I just want to point that out. Um, but I'm telling you right now, I don't think there's been a film in the last 10 years where there was such a, a fan base over it. it. Like, you couldn't go anywhere. Like, I remember feeling those loneliness person because I didn't jump on this bandwagon. And I think that's why I, I put it on here, because it's frustrating to me how like some films literally divide people. And I went to see this film with your good friend, uh, somebody who's been on the show, Stefano, and we went to see it in the first year of uni. So my film that I've decided to choose is Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> oh. My world is fire and blood. Everything is dependent on oil. You're killing for gasoline. The world is almost out of water. 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 Now there's the water wars. Here they come again. Everybody's gone out of their mind. Here we go. Here we go. So you were mentioning in. superheroes or something before, but like Aquaman. So I thought it was some superheroes. Or no, thing. they haven't made Aquaman too yet. So I don't <laughs> uh, right, strap yourselves in, guys. Here we go. So this is obviously directed by George Miller, the guy who made Happy Feet, and it stars Tom Hardy pre Venom. I think he has five lines of dialogue in the entire film. Uh, also, Charlie Theron is also in this uh, with a shaven head. Um, and basically, uh, it's the fourth installment. It's a Mad Max series. I've not seen the others, which you may have a good argument against me. Uh, but uh, you've got Tom Hardy playing Max, Charlie Strong playing Imp- uh, Imperial Fish Furiosa, and Nicholas Holt is also in this playing Nux. Uh, and basically, the story is, or lack of it, is it's set in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, which Joe knows is my favourite genre. Um, basically, you have Furiosa played by Charlie Theron. Uh, she is rebelling against um, a tyrannical ruler 
who is uh, named, say, by Hugh uh, Byrne, played by, uh, called Immortal Joe. He rules over the desert. There is no water. There is no fuel. And so everyone is starting to get really, really desperate. Um, so basically, the movie is one giant car chase for two hours. Uh, and you have Furiosa, who has kidnapped some of his women, um, who he uses to breed with and to make milk. Uh, <laughs> um, and so she grabs these prisoners, chucks them in the car, and goes for a good old road trip. Uh, on the way, she bumps into Max, who has his own demons, and Nicholas Holt as well, who wants to basically ride to Valhalla. He wants to sacrifice his life for Immortan Joe so that he can be considered a hero. And I, like I said, I've not seen the Mad Max movies, uh, which might be the big issue in all this. I don't know. But I remember going to watch this film and just everybody, and I think even now, everybody, absolutely, not just loving it, like seeing it as perfection, seeing it as a visual, not just a visual masterpiece, but something you can worship and pray every night before you go to bed. Um, and I was just somebody, I don't think it's been a single film since where I have, I have just no reason why people love it so much. I have no idea. Um, and rewatching it, I think I liked it a bit more and we're going to get into those positive points. So first thing, the positives in the film. Firstly, beautifully shot film. Like, um, like Craig said about Phantom Fed, beautiful film. Visually, very, very stunning. I liked uh, the desert wasteland. I thought the, the scenery and the location worked really, really well. Uh, the external shots are so well done, especially the car chase sequences. They're choreographed so well. And a lot of it is practical effects. They, they use very few CGI. So I've got to tip my hat off there for you, uh, George Miller. This is no happy feet here. Um, so I thought that was all excellent. Shai Theron is great. She's the best thing in it, hands down. Uh, she's the only character with any sense of backstory. She's the only character with any kind of purpose in the film. Um, and she's just a great actress. I love her. And I think she's really good in this. Now to the negatives. Um, Tom Hardy, the guy got so much hate for Venom. It, it was just beyond relief. Um, I think he's better in Venom than this. I, he gets five lines of dialogue. He, you know, and I understand me that's part of his character, but he just adds nothing to this, I don't think. He's just kind of somebody who they kind of use as muscle to fight off different bad guys. His flashbacks got on my nerves of this little skeleton boy, don't know who he is. Um, they were sporadic, they were inconsistent. The director popped them in at weird times, like he would be fighting somebody on the top of a trunk and it'd be like, Max, save me! And it didn't make any sense. I was just like, what's going on? And they dropped in whenever it's convenient to help the exposition of the story. Nux got on my nerves as well. Uh, Nicholas Holt, you knew from the first moment he was on screen, oh, here we go, we know his storyline. He's going to be somebody who's going to be a nobody, an unknown. Then he's going to be basically going to kill them. He's going to make friends with them, and then he's going to be considered a hero. And it's all going to be, you know, and that's, that's exactly what happens. He ends up sacrificing himself at the end. Um, and you, you, he kept dying, he kept falling off the car, and then somehow he got back on again. I was just like, what's going on? Uh, the narrative, Joe's laughing, I'm trying to be serious. The narrative is paper thin. I know it's not a film that's supposed to have this complex narrative, but the story is, let's drive somewhere, let's drive back. And I'm not kidding, that is the actual story, which may, people may like because it's nice and simple. Um, and just there's no character development, um, apart from Charlie Theron, she's the only person you care about. Um, and yeah, that's basically why, why I don't hate the film. Like, I think it's perfectly fine if people were just like, yeah, visually it's stunning. But if people kind of were just realistic and said, yeah, it's got a few issues, I would not be having this conversation. I would not be putting this film into this list. The reason why I have is because people treat it like it has no flaws whatsoever. <laughs> so yeah, that's just for me kind of what I'm, what I'm going on. So anyway, that's my 
argument for it. I'm sorry if I offended you, but I had to let it out. You know, it's like a good fight. You've just got to let it out. And yeah, eat me alive, boys. Here we go. Well, fair play, Dan. I didn't think there'd ever be a time in which I knew exactly how you felt during that yesterday conversation, because I can't disagree with you with anything you say. And that's why, you know, I, oh, I thanks, do. No, I, I, I love this film, but I come out of it thinking, why do people love it so much? And, but I came out of it thinking, wow, that was not at all what I expected. And that was a crazy situation. But it was just the, the longer I thought about it, you know, I didn't know what to think when I first came out of it. But the longer I thought about it, the more I loved it. And, and that's where I can't, you know, where you said, you know, this, this guy who uh, has multiple wives and, you know, they make milk for him. It's all the kind of stuff that, you know, like in Phantom Thread or Amazing Spider-Man, the way of picking up going, that's stupid. Why are you doing that? But it just depends on your personal enjoyment, mm. how much you like that kind of stuff. I was talking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, how much I like that. So, of course, I'm going to like some weird post-apocalyptic white people in, in the desert kind of thing. But that's the kind of thing that I enjoy. So I can completely understand somebody not enjoying that. And you're right, Mad, you know, the character Max doesn't play a big role in that film. You know, Furiosa is pretty much the main character of that story. She's the one that has the emotional arc. Um, but I'm fine with the whole flashbacks and the fact that he is just muscle because I believe that's just what the character is. The fact that he doesn't even say that much in the film, I think, emphasizes that even more, that he is just this sort of weapon in, in the sort of race that they have. And yeah, because it is just an entire car chase of a film, that's why people love it so much. So for you to then say, well, it's just a car chase of a film, that's why I can't say, well, yeah, if you, if you don't enjoy that or don't get on with this, like John Wick, if you don't get on with like crazy action mm. set pieces, you're not going to enjoy it. So I can completely understand your feelings on it. I would never want it to be considered guilty. So I'd have to say not guilty on that part. But yeah, I, I can completely understand your not appreciating it. I think the reason why so many people love it is kind of the same as Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 is that it didn't make that much money. So I think if it was like an Aquaman, it made a billion dollars, you would see more divisive people because more regular people are going to watch it. So they would be a bit freaked out by it. But because I think the large audience that went to see it was cinephiles and action lovers yeah then yeah. they are gonna talk about it a lot more because they were like oh my god this is the type of film we've wanted to see for years and this is crazy and it's inventive yeah. and it's artistic so i think that's why you hear a lot more about it because it's kind of like the snyder cut it's like even though they're a small group they're louder because they are so impassionate about it whereas i think yeah. if regular people saw this you know my mum would watch this and be like what the hell was that kind of <laughs> yeah. so you know and that, that's... basically your mum <laughs> yeah. so yeah I, I can understand but yeah I'd have to say uh, not guilty that's fair enough and you are you know that I completely respect that I think you've got it nail on the head so thank you David Dan in the time I've known you I've always thought of you as somebody who's incredibly over positive with films and enthusiastic so I'm not sure how I've felt about that over the last year or so. So I've basically been waiting for a moment like this, purely because I can be like, good, good, let the hate flow through you. End of skit. Woo! Yeah, I'm, like David, I'm never going to find this film guilty. I think that there is a lot of poetry when it comes into the actual choreography of the actual fight scene. And I think that uh, for people who look deeper uh, there are ways in which the story is told beautifully through visuals and like with reduced dialogue. That's why, that's why Tom, uh, Tom Hardy having like five lines doesn't bother me because it's not really the point. You basically tell the story 
through the visuals, through the action scenes. And I think the it's a groundbreaking film for the way it tells that. I had never seen a Mad Max film before this one. I didn't want to go and see this film. I believe that David and other members of our group of friends basically heavily, heavily encouraged me because I'm not allowed to say forced me to go and watch this film. And I 100% thank them for making me go and see this film because I thought that it was a spectacular experience. So yeah, there is a reason why back when we were doing film talk, this was voted our number one film of 2016. 2016 for 2015, I can't remember exactly which yeah, year. But... Did, you not, did, you know what, did you not watch many films that year? <laughs> right, Simmer. Um... I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> I know. I, I, I understand. I think, there was, I think it was just a case of, for the four of us doing the podcast at the time, it was the film that satiated the most of our, the most of our appetites. Because uh, our group back then were a mixture of like massive film critique nuts like David and myself, and people who would consider themselves more of the average cinema goer. So it was able to, it was able to get that good blend. But yeah, I just thought, I just thought it was a fascinating film. Uh, so for me, it's a very strong not guilty my vote is the last vote. So yeah, I remember seeing this and the first time I saw it, I wasn't overly impressed. I'm not going to lie. But I did go back to the cinema to see it, I think at least two more times because I wanted to give it another chance. And over the kind of repeated viewings, there was more that I took from it. There was more that I appreciated. And I think it is like, initially a weird movie to like get into um uh, so like i think on first viewing i was like whoa i'm not sure if i was like prepared for it um so i think definitely having like seen it once and then going back and watching it two three times um i started to get more and more from it uh not least you know just the sheer technical ambition of that movie uh you know we especially considering the fact that nowadays, you know, not sound like, you know, kind of old git, but nowadays everything is so CGI heavy and, you know, superheroes and you've got superhero movies and adaptations and all that kind of thing. Um, And I know this is a sequel, but it's been like decades since we've last seen a Mad Max movie. And this very much felt original anyway, compared to the other Mad Max movies. I think my biggest positive for it is that it, to give the pun, it has drive. It has such a narrative like drive to it. And I was watching, um, you probably saw yesterday, I have a poster of Raiders of the Lost Ark in, on my wall um, uh, in my other room. And uh, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's my favorite film of all time. And I watched that the other day and I thought to myself, there are not enough films this, these days which have that sort of narrative drive. It's all, you know, plot, 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 exposition, 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 you know, like two hours, two hours, 20 minutes to kind of get the story from A to Z. And Raiders, you know, you're hooked instantly. It's just never lets up. There's that mind that there's that one scene of exposition and then it's all, all go again. And Mad Max Fury Road is that personified. It just kicks off and it just builds and builds and builds. It's a very simple narrative, you're absolutely right, but I think that's key to it because everything else that's going on is just so like brilliant and just awe-inspiring really, like some of the stunts and stuff that, that, that they have in the film. So I'm, you know, it's great to see it win all those technical awards. 
um, at the Oscars and things like that. So yeah, Dan, you know, I love you a bit. You know, there are a few films every now and again we don't agree on. It's uh, not guilty for me as well. I kind of understand all of your points, which is strange because I do get it. I do get it that it is, is a visual masterpiece. It's, it's a thrill ride. And I actually, second time watching it, because I'd watched it since like 2015, it, it did fly quite quickly. You know, it did go by. But all these years, I want to let that out. So it's out now and I can be happy about life. So yes, even though it's not guilty, it can fly away. Goodbye. That is a not guilty uh, verdict for Mad Max Fury Road, which Dan courageously chose chose there, but uh, we unanimously decided to outvote him. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to sort of rub this in too much, but you know, Mrs. Spider-Man was the only one which... <laughs> which got guilty but uh, as Craig said it was from somebody who hadn't seen the film before uh, but yeah, yeah this it's, the- <laughs> it's the equivalent of literally if you had a juror who didn't watch the court case <laughs> 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 okay so end game time so we fought long and hard about how we could test your film knowledge what we ended up deciding was that we don't want to just test your film knowledge we want to test your film knowledge of your film knowledge Specifically, comments that you have made in the past regarding films. So this is why <laughs> our game this. today is called the Dan and Joe Filmo-ments. So ah, basically, lovely. lovely. That is brilliant. Yourself. Okay, so basically this is, uh, so here are the rules of the game. I'm going to read out a quote for you. This is either a quote that one of the two of you has made on one of the various shows that you have appeared on, whether that be the Dan and Joe film show, the other show you're involved in, or even (laughs) our episodes of Film Talk and Well Good Movies. Or it is going to be a quote from a random movie character. So each question is going to be worth two points. We want you to guess, first of all, if this is one of your quotes or not. So as in, did one of you two say it, or did a movie character say it? And then for a second point, if it was one of you two, what were you talking about? And like, what sort of episode thingy was it on? Or if it was a movie, which movie was it? So does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The impressive thing as well is that to reveal the answers, we do have the clips. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I said, okay, are we ready for quote number one? Yeah. Yeah. There was one song or rap I wrote called Why Jocks Rule the World. Can, can you read the quote again, please? There was one song or rap I wrote called Why Jocks Rule the World. Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> that's so hard. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> I want to say it's got to be... Okay, so both um, of you have claimed that it was Joe. And that is so would you like to explain a little bit of the context oh wait you don't have to because we can listen to it right now and to top it all off oh my gosh i used to go on to rap 
music forums. <laughs> and I, this is like a whole new know, like, side yeah. of Joe. I've never seen this. Right? No. And I used to um, write lyrics, like raps, yeah. and send it to these forums. Or them kids. And um, there was one song that I wrote, rap, called "When <laughs> Why Jocks Rule the World. Oh, my God. That's a killer <laughs> song. It was awful. And I sent these lyrics. And um, the guy at the time was like, um, those are weak. But I no. thought he meant weak, as in good, because oh, I didn't know the slang. No. But yeah. How could you think that weak means good, mate? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That is brilliant. Thank you yeah. for, for digging deep into my closet for the skeletons for, for that yeah. one. <laughs> so... Uh, in that context, it was from your previous show where you were talking about Dumbo and Shazam. Wow. Okay. So, that is weird why I'm talking about rap <laughs> with yeah. Dumbo and Shazam. I think it was because Shazam <laughs> has an Eminem song in it and you yeah, were yeah. played it on this uh, okay. okay, so because of the fact that Joe did message me uh, the show, but not necessarily the episode, David, do we give him the second point? I think so, or yeah. We not? Okay, so in that situation, Joe gets two points and Dan gets one point. Quote number two. It's a full course buffet. They keep putting more food on your plate, but I've had enough. I've had enough. But they keep putting more on. Would you like some wings, sir? No, I've had enough. What <laughs> 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 well, that's nuts that we said that. <laughs> well, did you? I don't know. That's the game. Uh, so both of you have answered that it was Dan who said it. It was indeed Dan who said it. So Dan has claimed it's from the radio show, while Joe believes it's from the DJ film show. Joe? Which means oh. that. Thank you. So the scores are now tied. Let's listen to the moment in question. Dumbo, I know that's kind of the eagerly awaited uh, Disney film. So much of Disney this year now. We're going to talk a bit more about that later on. Yeah. If you're a fan of Disney, it's like it's a four-course buffet. <laughs> you, keep, you keep putting more food on your plate. Like, I've had enough. I've had enough. They keep putting more on. Would you like some more wings, sir? No. No, stop. Um, we also have reviews of mid nineteen. I don't know why. <laughs> that's so weird. I don't know why. Every time I heard that, uh, read that quote, I always imagined you did some form of French accent. I don't know why. He loves a good French accent. He loves oh, French do. accent as much as he loves uh, food. Absolutely, they are my life. And then for you, know, if I'm in a French French restaurant with a full buffet, forget about it. Are we ready for quote number three? Yes. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I, I, I'm pretty sure I know who said it, but it's the show. I, I, I uh, yeah, I've given my answer. I can't think of um, anything else, but I think I've given the wrong answer there. So Dan has a deed message. He believes it's Joe from the uh, Dan and Joe film show, while Joe has claimed that it's actually a film character. Oh, Joe! Ah, it's a character for, uh, it's a character from a film. Sorry, Dan. So yeah. this is the clip. Let's see if you can guess which film this is now. You got a very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. 
Don't have a clue. I think Joe might have realised. Yes, it's Princess Bride, right? Tis the Princess Bride, yes. So, quote number four, another short one. Eighth grade, which we were both big fans of. Hmm, really hard. I'm going to put the show down first because I know exactly what show it was. Okay. Oh, it's really hard. It could be either of us, couldn't it, Joe? Yeah, I think I know who it is. Um, but yeah, I've put the show, I think it is as well. I don't know again the. Okay, the actual I answered. Okay, so this is interesting. So you've both claimed it's from the radio show, which is. However, you both think that it's yourself. So Dan has claimed it's Dan. Joe has claimed it's Joe. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play the clip and let that answer for you. <laughs> so here's the discussion of eighth grade. Right, coming in at number 10, eighth grade, which we both were big fans of. Yeah. I felt like deja vu, didn't it? Yep, so in that situation, Dan. Oh, oh, oh. like deja vu. Tell you what, lads, fair play, great quiz. I mean, this is what it's all about, isn't it? Neck and neck. So that was your episode talking about The Hustle and Detective Pikachu. Excellent. So after four quotes, you are level with five points each. Ooh. Come on, guys, come on. Quote number five. I'm a bit scared now, and I started to sweat. And when I sweat... Oh boy, I sweat everywhere. <laughs> it wasn't just my palms, okay? My palms were sweaty, my legs were sweaty, other places were sweaty as well. Oh, that's really hard. I think the episode is going to be vital on this, this specific episode. Yeah, so this one we're not going to accept. We're, we're not just uh, going to accept the, the, the show, but we want the specific uh, episode. I, I think I know what it is. Can you repeat the quote, Craig? Absolutely. I'm a bit scared now when I started to sweat. And when I sweat, oh boy, I sweat everywhere. It wasn't just my palms, okay? My palms were sweaty. My legs were sweaty. Other places were sweaty as well. I'm going to take a risk here. Okay, so Joe has claimed that Dan said this in their episode talking about Mission Impossible from the radio. And Dan has claimed that he didn't say this, but a film character said this. Joe is correct. Oh, Mission Impossible show. No, 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 no. Not the, oh. not the episode. The episode is uh, wrong. Okay. You well, did, however, say this, Dan. Did I actually say, oh boy? Oh, gosh. Apparently so. You said, you said this in the, the Dan and Joe film show talking about the Razzies. Ah, oh. okay. So okay. Here's, the, here's the quote. And I thought, okay, so this climax now, they're going to bring all these plot points together and it's going to make perfect sense and it's going to be and even if it doesn't it's going to be fun and they're going to try something really interesting i was looking at my watch and i thought okay so this is a 90 minute film we've got two minutes left i'm a bit scared now and i started to sweat <laughs> and when i sweat oh boy i sweat everywhere it was not just on my palms okay my palms were sweaty my legs were sweaty other places were sweaty as well i was half expecting an eminem style rap there about mom's spaghetti <laughs> Yeah, you see, I, Dan, Dan, I, obviously it was you because that's a running joke that we have that you sweat in films. 
And the reason that I went for Mission Impossible was I remember when the last one came out, Fallout, I think it was, you said you were like sweaty in that film. And I remember you said you were so sweaty that the following day I went to the gym and I posted, I sent you a picture of me actually sweating in the gym and said, sweating like Dan watching uh, Mission Impossible. <laughs> so I, I just naturally assumed it was that. But yeah. I think you were talking about the team. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Quote number six. Maybe there'll be all these news nerds going, hey, baby, want to news and chill? Mm, That's really hard. I'm going to put the show first. Cool. Because I I think I know what show it is. Um, It was one of us two, definitely. That wasn't the film character. So, again, both of you have gone for the Dan and Josh film show, which is, again, both of you claim that it's yourselves who say it. So Joe is claiming Joe, Dan is claiming Dan. Joe is. Oh, wow. Joe has gone for more specific detail. He has claimed that it's episode five. So (sighs) your, your fifth episode, what was it? I don't know. I'm just that was just a shot in the dark, to be honest. Wow, Joe, incredible! Well, it, was, just, it was the it was the Craig Roberts Q and A, wasn't it? Well, if you both agree, that's what episode five is. Saying it's episode five is because it was actually from the streaming special with Tara Williams. Ah, get it. Let's listen to the clip. He's obsessed with watching News 24. That is his. Forget Netflix and Amazon. Forget Netflix and chill. He likes the BBC News and chill. Right, okay, that, that, that's a new one. Um, yeah, yeah. Know, I can't hear that. They may be able to catch on post-coronavirus, you know? Maybe there'll be all these um, kind of news nerds going, hey, baby, want to come over and news <laughs> um, Can I just say, you guys have done an amazing job of, like, gathering all the funniest clips we ever had in our career. Well, honestly, yeah, we, well, we, you, you need to be paid for this. Cool, yeah, pay well, us. Then, guys. So, coming up into question seven, Dan is on six, while Joe is on eight. So, number seven. This is the one I think is going to test your friendship. (laughs) It's the first time I've ever seen you look ugly, and that makes me kind of happy. Can you repeat the quote, please? Absolutely. It's the first time I've ever seen you look ugly, and that makes me kind of happy. Okay. So... Dan has claimed that this is a film character. Well, pessimistically, Joe has claimed that Dan said this on the Dan and Joe film show. (laughs) Presumably about Joe. Well, I'm happy to say that Dan didn't say this and it was a film character. So Dan is... Yes! So, I should have more faith in you, Dan. I should have more faith yeah. in you. In all fairness, I kind of said a comment similar to it. I didn't say you were ugly, but um, I said, I don't know what I said. I said, like, oh, you know, half attractive or something like that. It's like a joke. So I think maybe that's what they thought. All right. So here's the. called me B Tech John Ham. So that's why I just. <laughs> I think that's worse. Okay. Here's, uh, here's the clip from the film it is. Let's see if you can guess what the film is. Oh, you're smiling. It's just, it's just, this is the first time I've ever seen you look ugly. Makes me kind of (laughs) happy. I look ugly. No, I don't. I don't really look ugly. Ooh, I don't know that one. That's that's bridesmaids. 
Been a while, been a while. Cool. Number eight. This is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel. Sorry, can you repeat the quote again? Yep. This is the one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel. Okay. So, Joe thinks that this is a film character, but isn't sure which film, the, which film it is. Dan has claimed that Joe has said this on the radio. So, Joe, you are... Uh, I just it's, thought Christopher Larson was the film character. It's, it's from a film. Uh, oh. Let's see if you have a, more of an idea of which film it is when you hear the clip. This is one time where television really fails to capture true excitement of a lot of movies in the weather. I, for one, am very grateful to have been here from Punxsutawney. This is Phil Connors. So long. It's Groundhog Day. So coming up to our last three quotes, a score update. Joe is on nine while Dan is on seven. Every chance to bring it back. Every chance to bring it back. Number nine. I like to think we're partners, okay? We're partners in crime. You're not a magician, and I'm not some, of, I'm not some sort of closet-clad showgirl. Cool. No wasting time. Both of you think it's from, uh, think it's from Joe. Both of you think it's from the uh, Dan show, uh, Joe film show. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you got that right, because there was a slight liberty taken with that one. But... So let's listen to the beautiful moment in question. Uh, I'm Dan, as always, uh, coming to you via the internet, via Skype, and I'm joined again by my gorgeous assistant. Some of you know him as Joe, some of you know him as El Campagne, uh, I, I know him as my stupid lover. It's Joe Richards. Joe Richards, your glamorous assistant. we we got, we got to do this glamorous assistant business, uh, Daniel, okay? Because I like to think we're partners, okay? <laughs> we're partners in crime. All right? I'm not, I'm not some, you're not a magician, and I'm not some sort of corset clad. Oh, uh, come on. Uh, uh, can, can you not be my Debbie McGee to my Paul Daniel? Good <laughs> <laughs> old Debbie. We just assumed what Joe finished that sentence with there. <laughs> Oh, could have been a corset clad anything you could have said <laughs> yeah that is absolutely brilliant guys all i can say is if you guys ever because this is showing just how sort of like nice and banterous your relationship is if you ever did this for me and david it would just be things like me yelling just like <laughs> okay It'd just be like my glamorous assistant shut up <laughs> <laughs> you did make me watch jack and jill along with shelly though david come on <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't disputing that. Yeah. All right. Quote number 10. We're singing and we're learning. Okay. You both think it's a film character, but it seems like neither uh, of you can guess the film. Or you still thinking? I type in now. It's a, it's a shot in the dark again, but for some reason, uh, it's a recent film, uh, which me and Dan have talked about. So potentially okay. it could be that. I don't know. Okay. So Joe thinks it's Dora the Explorer, while Daniel thinks it's Mary Poppins. So, in terms of whether or not it's a film character, yeah, is, is somebody from film? Is it somebody from one of those films? Ah, I thought Joe had it. I thought it was a really good answer. To be fair, see, even in, even in like not getting the point, you're both respectful to each other. With me and David, <laughs> it's just like, ha, suck it. No, so 
Let's see if you recognize it now. Well, what's that? Oh, that, yeah. Mm. We were singing, we were singing, and we were learning. We were learning in sing song. Huh. That was School of Rock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we were trying. We we wanted to see if we could throw you off because obviously we know Dan is involved in teaching. So we thought maybe that could have naturally come up in some way. Uh-huh. And now we come to the final quotes. Come on. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening to your rant, and I can completely respect your opinion. And I kind of see where you're coming from. If that sounds strange. Hmm. Could be either. I think. I reckon that is. Okay. So interestingly, both of you are denying ownership of this quote by claiming it's the other. So Joe believes it's Dan. Dan believes it's Joe. Who actually said it? Well, Dan said it. Wow. So Joe, enjoy it. Uh, in terms of whether or not it was from the radio show, you are both. Ah. Because this is a quote from when you appeared on our show. Ah. So this is from film. This is from Film Talk. Let's see if you can guess what we had just talked about. I know, that's just how I saw it. Obviously, yeah. you've been glaring at me for a while. <laughs> no, we haven't! Like, actually, in all fairness, I, I, I've enjoyed listening to your rant, and I, I, I completely can respect your opinion. I, I kind of see where you're coming yeah. from, if that sounds strange. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can remember what Ooh. film you were talking about. You were talking about Dark Phoenix, weren't you? No, David, oh. was, on, David was the one who hated Dark Phoenix. That was yesterday. Oh. Ah, I, yeah. I yeah. think. Um, oh, it was yesterday, was it? Oh, right. Yeah, it okay. was definitely yesterday. David doesn't rant. Well, I would have said that until today. I alluded yeah. to that moment earlier, actually, like un- unknowingly. It's like subconsciously yeah. said. Funnily, funnily enough, uh, in terms of the film that I chose for this episode, I had a number of films I could have chosen, like yesterday, but I've talked about it a lot. And there are lots of other films I've talked about a lot. Right. <laughs> so that is the end of today's game. So. Was it a close to contest? Um, kind of, but Joe takes a victory with 12 points while, yeah. while Dan is in second place or losing with nine. <laughs> oh, that's, that's not bad at all. That's not bad at all. And I've got to say, well done, Joe. You are superior. Um, but yeah, yeah I'm really I'm quite happy with that, to be honest. I think it's the highest score I've ever gotten on this show. So. Joe, congratulations. Thank you, guys. I think I, over I time, yeah, like, Dan's right. He might have had higher and higher each time. So, yeah, but that, like Dan said, that I, I mean, I've listened to your show a lot. Dan has listened to many an Endgame, and it might be because obviously we're, we're self-involved or whatever. But that was an outstanding Endgame. So well done, guys. Oh. It must have been a lot. Merci, of merci beaucoup, merci beaucoup. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But yeah, very, very fun, guys. This. Uh, and a pleasure to have you on, as always. It kind of reminded me of Mr. And Mrs. when Craig kept saying, oh, you've gone, you know, for each other on this one, you know, when they hold the paddles and it's like... We are, we are basically a married couple. <laughs> yeah, so. it's, like, yeah. it's like, who does this in the kitchen the most? And they like, oh, I'll say that it's me so I don't offend the other one. <laughs> I do want to hold a Mr. and Mrs. for, for podcast co-hosts, just so, I can, just so I can have like a vibe about like the sort of partnerships that are going on. And they just show the mine and David's vibing and everyone just be like, oh, 
<laughs> um, no, can, you know, can I can, can I just say thank you guys so much? It's been um, it's been a real treat, and uh, yeah, that end game was just uh, so good, and um, and it's been yeah, it's been a pleasure again to be on uh, Well Good Movies. Oh, well, thank you very much for coming on, guys. It's been loads of fun, and we've had loads of fun talking about the films that we love, uh, but other people hate. So please do go check that out on the Dan and Joe Film Show. It's a lot of fun, like this episode was. And like I said, we've had loads of fun talking about the films that we hate that everyone else loves. So, Dan and Joe, where can we find yourselves? Where, where should we check out the episodes? Um, yeah, you can find us on Facebook, uh, the Dan and Joe Film Show. You can find us on Twitter, at DJ Film Show, and Instagram, uh, which uh, the more talented uh, partner in this, Joe Richards, uh, heads up. So, uh, and where else can they find us, Joe? <laughs> uh, yeah, they can find us um, on any kind of social media platform, really, Twitter, Facebook. Instagram. Uh, if you want to listen to us, we're available on Spotify, all good kind of podcasting outlets uh, as well. So uh, we're there. Just uh, give us a search, and uh, we're always engaging with people. And we like to hear what what you know people think, and try and get as much kind of, of your comments into the show as well. So uh, you know, feel free. There's a lot on there to comment about and stuff like that as well. I'm sure Craig will be commenting on the next episode. What did you think of Phantom Thread? Did you rewrite Phantom Thread? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, thank you guys. Uh, Same with us. You can catch us. Well, good movies on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also check out our website, which is freshtakehub.com slash wellgoodmovies, where you can also catch a bunch of reviews and written content as well. So please do uh, rate us, uh, review us. Both uh, shows, Dan and Joe Film Show and this show are on iTunes. Uh, follow us wherever you can on Spotify and all the socials and uh, as well as Dan and Joe uh, pointed out in the uh, previous episode we did which is Dan and Joe Film Show is currently a British Podcast Award so please do go vote for both shows in that it would be a massive uh, honour for any of us to get. and thank you to anybody who has voted so far so uh, thank you guys uh, and yeah we'll uh, look forward to having you on again and we look forward to hearing some more of your, your content Thank Cheers. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. Bye. Don't right. forget to channel the hate. <laughs> See you on the next one. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, boy, I sweat <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> <What is> <laughs> <just> <laughs>